Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, hopefully, again, you do, to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. And we are in our series entitled, Live to Give. This is our fourth week, fourth and final week within this series, although our small, our small groups will continue to study, um, not only just this week, but into next week as well. And then we'll be embarking on our study in the latter part of October, entitled, uh, Man at Work. We'll be going through the entirety of the Gospel of Mark. But today we are finishing up and we have been talking in the past several weeks about looking at the entirety of our lives under the supremacy of Christ. What is the entirety of our life look under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ? We've looked at several things. We've been examining this in our small groups. We've been examining it in our morning sermon. We've looked at our time, having God be the God of our time. We're busy people. But we need to be giving, let God be the director and the Lord over our time. We've looked at our talents, the gifts that we've been given, both natural and spiritual, and using those for the glory of God. We've also looked at our treasure, our money, the things that God has um, blessed us with, and make sure, making sure that we are not delighting more in the creation than we are in the Creator. And oftentimes we tend to reverse those two things. But we've come to the final one, the end of our journey at Live to, um, as we look at our Live to Give series. And this one is, we're looking at our testimony. Our testimony at the, as we testify to the greatness of who Jesus Christ is. And today we're looking at the uh, first Peter. Peter is the author, the great, uh, big, bold apostle Peter. And he is writing during a time of tremendous, tremendous persecution. Some believe it's in the, in the, the 60s, 80s, 60s that he's writing. He is writing as the emperor of Rome has issued a, kind of a, a, a total persecution going on of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. And he is telling them to remain true, remain faithful, keep testifying to the greatness of who Jesus is. Now, those of us, we are to continue to testify to the greatness of who Jesus is. The Bible is very clear that we are in the last days. As we've talked about in the last several weeks, we examined time and, and we looked at time and we said that a thousand years to us is like one day to God. And though it might seem like a long period of time has passed from our perspective, in the mind of God it's just been a blank. It's been a short period of time. The Bible is clear though that we are in the last days. But our culture has a tendency to reject that. And even many different Christians become very comfortable. We get addicted or we fall asleep, we get lulled into this complacency as we take in the carbon monoxide of culture, failing to realize that the more that we breathe in, breathe in this carbon monoxide of culture, it's killing us on the inside and keeping us from truly understanding and applying God's word in the, the entirety of our lives. And the only way that we can do that is make sure that we continually go back to the alarm of God's word. I don't know, you might have a carbon monoxide detector in your home. It's odorless. You, don't, you can't detect it. It's just coming in and it can kill a family instantaneously. Unless you have that carbon monoxide detector there to alert you when it's, it detects it, that it, this, this gas is there and it can kill you. That's why we continually go back to God's word, that we might be corrected and we, may not sure, we must make sure that we don't, aren't lulled to sleep by our culture because our culture tries to make it like this world's going to go on forever. But the Bible's clear. This world is going to come to an end. And we need to understand what is our responsibility in the last days. In essence, what is our job description? 
What are we supposed to do? If you've ever had a job, you should have a job description that outlines your responsibilities, where you begin, where you end, what you're supposed to be doing. I think any one of us who's held a job for any period of time understands a job description. Well, Peter is laying out for us a job description for a Jesus follower in the last days. How are we to testify to the greatness of who Jesus is in our homes, in our families, with our friends, with our colleagues, with those with whom we come into contact with? And what should we expect? What should we be thinking? How should we go about it? How should we live our life with purpose in the last days? What does God want of us? And Peter lays it forth in 1 Peter chapter 3. And I invite you to turn with me if you haven't already. We'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 down through verse 17. It's in our tradition here at Village Bible Church Grace Campus to stand for the reading of God's word. So I would ask you to please stand with me as I read from the English Standard Version. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do so with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come into your presence, Lord, asking that you show us who you are, that you reveal yourself to us, that you might convict our hearts and our minds to fulfill this job description that you have laid out before us, that we might testify to your greatness, that we might tell other people who you are and what you have done in our lives. Lord, I pray that if you, if there's anything in this in this place right now, or in one of our hearts that is keeping us from hearing what you have for us, please bring it to the surface. Help us to confess it. Help us to remove it. And help us to receive what it is that you have for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we're looking at what it means to be a Jesus follower in the last days. The first thing that I'd like you to notice, if you're looking at your Bible, is it begins with a promise. God is laying out a promise for us. Now, look at verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. God is laying forth in His Word that if you are suffering for doing good, for testifying by your actions that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the one true God, the Savior of the world, who died on the cross for your sins and mine, that if you testify that you're going to possibly suffer, but if you do suffer, understand you're going to be blessed. God is going to bless you. Now see, there are many people within the world today that think being a Christian just means having a happier life, that it's, it's going to make life better, that I'm not going to have as many problems. I would dare to differ on that one. Because the Bible is clear that we are going to be persecuted. We're going to go through a difficult time if you testify to the greatness of who Jesus Christ is by your words and by your actions that persecution will come. But God gives us a promise that if we continue to adhere, that we continue to faithfully follow the word of God and do what it is that God wants us to do, we will be blessed. See, Peter recognized that sometimes harm does come to those who are doing good. However, if that is the case, 
then they will be blessed. Peter was echoing the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 on what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. See, Jesus said said something very similar in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. He said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now what is Jesus saying there? That you are blessed. That there's a special reward for you. And Peter is reiterating his words. There awaits an award for you if you suffer as a follower of Christ. God will reward you for what you endure and for what you go through. Now Peter goes on. He says, now who is there to harm you? Actually, that's how he begins in verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The word zealous is zelotes. means a person with zealous enthusiasm who literally boils over with passion. Boils over with passion. See, many Christians today that I've encountered don't boil over. Matter of fact, they're about as fun as watching an ice cube freeze. I mean, it's almost like death warmed over. There's no passion for who Jesus Christ is any longer. But they go through the motions because that's what they are supposed to do. That's what they taught, were taught when they were just a young child. They came to church. That's what you do. It's the social contract. It's just who I am. I was born into it. There is no passion because they've not been born again. When a person is born again, there's new life. The Bible is clear that we are now new creations. That we've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works. It overflows from us. We can't keep it in just like boiling water. just overflows in the pot as you put it on there to boil. It just comes forth. You can't help it. It just becomes part of you. We're to be zealous. That's what we're, we're to be zealous for doing good works. As Paul wrote to Titus in Titus 2, chapter 2, verse 14. He says, of Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In other words, we're to have passion. Passion. Are you passionate for Christ? Do you have a a zeal for him? We have to be boiling for Christ. Have Have you forgotten who Jesus is? Perhaps you're like the church in Laodicea that isn't hot or cold and is about to be spewed out of the mouth of Christ. Jesus says to them, be zealous and repent. Where's your zeal? Where is it? What has crept in? What has taken you off the burner and enabled you to get cold? What what unbelief, what struggle, what sin have you allowed to creep into your life? Or have we allowed as a church to creep into our corporate life that we're not even boiling as a body? What is that? Removing our passion. We need to be boiling over for Christ. He's our creator. He's our sustainer. He's the one who died for us. He is the savior of the world. The highest meaning, thought, the achievement known to man. He's our redeemer and it is through him that the world must be even viewed and understood because there is nothing that can stack up to him. No army, no coup, no philosophy and no rebellion. We must therefore make sure that we are boiling for Christ. We are keeping ourselves on the burner for him. 
and asking God to remove the layers of sin and unbelief that have built up over the years, asking Him to restore you to a right relationship, asking, you to fill, fill him, uh, asking Him to fill you with His Spirit, and asking Him to bring any remembrance of sin, any areas of rebellion, and any things which you need to make restoration. Look at verse 14 for a moment. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. See, know this, that if you're going to testify to the greatness of who Jesus is, that you will face persecution. All who seek to be godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The question is, are you being persecuted? Not that you go seeking for persecution. That's not the point. But the point is, is if you are living the way that Christ desires you to live, continually testifying to his greatness, you're going to meet resistance because you're going to find people that can't stand the message that you are presenting. Paul also makes it clear in 2 Corinthians that we are the aroma of Christ, those who are perishing. To some it is the smell of death, to others it is the smell of, of life. The question is, is what do you smell like? I mean, some of you have a spiritual smell. Do you smell good? That's so, it's so much that when other people who are, who, are being, who are seeking God see you and want to be like you, and those who, who really don't like God, just you repulse them in a way because they know that you're being authentic, you're being true. Some of us have no scent whatsoever because we're not hot or cold. We need to understand that we will face persecution. If you follow Christ, you will be persecuted, and why not? Jesus himself said we would, as Jesus said in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will also keep yours. We will go through trials and tribulations, and there will be times when we stand for Christ that we will face persecution, and it's inevitable. Now, not that we need go looking for it, but know that it will be there if we stand for Christ. And if we know that we will face persecution, then we also need to make sure that we're getting ourselves ready through determined preparation. Preparation. Look at verse 15. This is the heart right here of our testimony, the heart of this passage. But in your hearts, regard, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. See, we need to be prepared to make a defense. The word here in Greek is apologia, where we get the word, our word, apology. Not that we need to read that back in. That's, that's wrong. We're, we are not making an apology. I'm so sorry that I'm a Christian. Forgive me for believing in Jesus and saying you're a sinner. It's not like that. It means giving an intellectual defense, giving a reason for the hope that we have. That's where we get our word apologetics. If you've ever heard of men like Ravi Zacharias or Norm Geisler, these are individuals who are in the public arena, and they are testifying to the greatness of who Jesus is, defending the faith against all comers and giving a reason and showing that it is reasonable to be a follower of Christ. So we need to be prepared this defense that we give is based upon the fact that we know that Jesus is Lord. Now, our pre preparation is based on this, first of all. It's based on His rule, that He is the Lord. Now, a week and a half ago, I was invited to speak at AU to the InterVarsity Group. Some of those ladies are here today. Um, and I was invited to talk on the topic, Who is Jesus to you? And I prepared my message, and I got there, and I saw that there was a question on the back, and I was talking to some of the leaders, and I said, I think the question is wrong. It doesn't matter who Jesus is to you. It matters who is Jesus 
and what do I do about it? It's not what I want him to be. I can't just say, oh, Jesus is a great teacher. He doesn't give you that option. He gives himself to be the Lord God, the one who forgives sin. You can't just say that Jesus is a good teacher. To say that Jesus is a good teacher is to really overlook the rest of the stuff that he said, that he claimed to be God, and that he could forgive sin. He, he is the one, the primary one who seems to be offended in all cases of sin. It's one thing for me to say to Kyle here and say, Kyle, you know, you might have taken $5 from me, and I forgive you. But it's another thing if Crystal were to look at Kyle and go, by the way, you're forgiven for taking $5 from Travis. And I'd say, what right do you have? Now, that's what Jesus does. Because he recognizes that he is the primary one that has been offended in all instances of sin. That's why when David, after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, he had said, against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Did he sin against Bathsheba? Yeah. Did he sin against Uriah? He did. But the ultimate understanding of sin goes into the face of Almighty God. And so Jesus shows that he is God. He is the Lord. He, it's all about his rule. If he's God, what, do I need to, what changes do I need to make in my life to reflect that? See, our world today wants to make Jesus uh, just, I like Jesus as a teacher. I like him as this. I'll take a little bit of that. I'll take a little Buddhism here. I'll take a little Taoism here. Uh, give me some little, you know, materialism right here. And we make this big, giant Jesus souffle. And we can't. The Bible doesn't give us that option. The Bible shows that Jesus is the Christ. That's it. Either we submit to it and order our lives under that, or we reject it. There is no other way. To compromise and try to do both is impossible. It's impossible. So our preparation here is based on his rule. He rules. We're to honor Jesus as the Lord of our lives. He is victorious and rose from the dead. He defeated sin, Satan, and death, and he sits at the Father's right hand, waiting for the day when his enemies will be made his footstool. Right now, he's reigning in heaven, as the, in essence, we've talked before, as the Savior elect. Though he's already been brought into office, he's waiting to consummate that rule. He reigns in heaven, but he's waiting for the day when his rule will be consummated. It is on that day, as Paul wrote to the, the Romans, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Or it's the day when each, man's, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. All creation waits for that day, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who have subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together and the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we await for it with patience. It's the day when, as Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That every knee will bow because he is Lord. That's what Peter is saying there. 
regard Christ the Lord. Understanding it's His rule, His reign. Now our preparation is not only based upon that, because we understand that He's coming back, and we're going to be stewards of everything that He's entrusted to our care, but it's also based on His righteousness. That's why He says, regard Christ the Lord as holy. The word holy means set apart, altogether different. And why? Because of what Jesus has achieved. He lived the perfect life. He satisfied God's wrath. He paid the price for our sins. He suffered for us. He gave His life for us. He severed the chains of sin that captured your soul. He's the only one that can save us. There is no other. See, we honor Him apart, by setting Him apart in our lives, by setting our lives to a different standard, by living our life under His authority because of what He has achieved. But our preparation also gives a proper reason. Reason. Giving a reason is actually the Greek word logos, which means word. Here it means giving a verbal witness to who Jesus Christ is and what He has done in the world and in you. Now, many, I've, I've met many different Christians that think it is wrong to give a reason. They think it's just ultimately the Spirit, so they do nothing because they, they don't have the, the ability or they, don't, they, aren't fi- they aren't taking the time to learn how to give a reason. When they encounter opposition, then they just throw up the spiritual barrier, say it's a spiritual issue, God's going to have to save them, I'm done. Maybe that's been you. I've encountered this in my own family in dealing with some, somebody that had some very uh, cerebral or questions about the faith and why they dis, disregarded it or di- didn't believe in it. And I sat down and we tried to go back and forth and back and forth just talking and, and reasoning together. But the rest of the family just couldn't do it. They just said, oh, it's God, it's got to save him. Yes, it is, but he uses us to bring the message of that salvation. So we have to make sure that we are setting to show ourselves approved under God, being able to give and articulate intellectually and verbally who Jesus Christ is in a world that has largely rejected him and left him by the wayside. But how do we do that? I'd like to show you a clip from a book that I find to be profound. It's uh, I, Hopefully, I don't know if you've read it, it's a New York Times bestseller. It's by Timothy Keller, the pastor, pastor of Res, uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. He was told that he could never... Uh, get a church to go there. There was too much opposition. I believe they're at several campuses now, quickly growing, a uh, great pastor. And he wrote this book, The Reason for God. And it's, it's, become, it's an amazing book. I would really encourage you uh, to get this. It's not just for the, light of, the faint of heart. It's going to challenge you, but it's a great book. And uh, if you ever study this book, you'll find out quickly there's a study guide that goes with it. And he made a video to go with this. And he did something that I think many of us would just not do. He, he brought six atheists into a room, the very smart people, and he, he presented a question, and then they presented their reasons for disbelief. And then he talked with them about it. Now imagine that. Someone presents a very difficult question to you. I mean, you have no idea what they're going to say, you have, and, and it's being vide- videotaped. And then it's sent out to churches. And watching it, at times, you hear a question and you just go, ooh, that's a tough one. And, and, but you have to keep watching it to see what he does. And I want to show you how he is giving a reason for the hope that he has and how he is exhibiting and fulfilling this with gentleness and respect. As a girl is going to present a question to him, and he is going to answer it. And I'd like to show that to you and bring that up right now. What I would say to you is, is it implausible to you that it might not be true? Uh, is, I mean, would all your work, if, you, if someday you had to face the fact that all your work was for nothing, would you be able to do so? So 
um, am I open to the possibility that yeah. Christianity isn't true? Right? Is yeah. that what you're asking? Yeah. Um, well, the reasons I believe, so just speaking personally, are both rational and uh, you might say existential. That is, um, there's two reasons why at this point in my life I feel Christianity is true. One is I think about it, I look at the arguments, I think reasonably, and I feel like on the, uh, on the whole the arguments are very strong, and that's my rational side. I could imagine in a group like this uh, having that, uh, you know, some of my arguments that in my head are strong being weakened, yes. Could I be open to you, uh, perhaps in here, you bright people, dismantling some of my arguments? Yes. The existential part, that is a sense of God's presence, a powerful sense of God's presence, uh, which came into my life after I first was convinced that probably Christianity was true. Then I got into it. Then I had these very strong experiences of God's presence. That's not going to go away very quickly. I'm a composer, and I believe in the world of art. And art now, I don't know if you got that. It was just a minute and a half. It was very quickly. But she presented, she said, could it be possible that it's not true? How would you respond? If someone asked you that question, how would you respond? I was impressed with his response. He says, I rationally believe it. He doesn't feel threatened. He doesn't respond verbally. He doesn't insult them and walk away. He doesn't disregard their question. He takes the question. He says, rationally, I believe it's true, and I have these reasons why. Could you, these bright people in this room, demolish some of my arguments? Possibly, yeah. But he says, but, ex uh, but existentially, experientially, you would have a hard time of changing what I have experienced of who God is. So he's done rational and he's done experiential. And he has answered her question in a very profound way. Now we're going to encounter all kinds of opposition because Satan, has, he works and creates philosophical systems that are, that are antithetical to Jesus Christ. That's why if the statistics are true, which I hope they are not, but released a few years ago on, on the amount of children raised in Christian home and how, much they, or how quickly they abandon the Christian faith. Statistically... 88% statistically abandon the Christian faith when they get into their first year of college. Why? Because we have failed to equip them to give a reason for the hope that we have. When those questions come that are beyond our ability to understand, we either write them off, we ignore them, we hope that they go away, we try to just pray it away, rather than really think concretely and to seek answers. For some of us, we're fearful because it might reveal some unbelief in our own life, and it's a threat to who we are. So that's where I think faith should be seeking to understand. We need to seek to understand this world and not be threatened by every time it comes in because God's word is true. It is proven true, and God can handle those arguments. But, and this is where it comes into how do we answer questions like that? I mean, we must make sure that we have the proper response. That's the next are, within your notes, after reason, the proper response. See, we're to answer with gentleness and respect. And unfortunately, within the dialogues, within the public debate or the public arena, gentleness is not the first word that comes to mind when Christians are debating non-Christians. Matter of fact, gentleness is probably the last word. And we're afraid. We're fearful. We don't have the answers. And it becomes, becomes a threat to our being. Because we, we believe something in the depth of our heart, and when we can't articulate it, we feel threatened, and maybe we think the whole edifice is not true. 
And that's why we go to individuals such as these uh, apologists who are defending the faith. And they can give and help us articulate and understand what it is that we do believe. But we must make sure as we are interacting with unbelievers and they do present their questions to us, that we have the proper response. See, gentleness has got a bad rap. The word literally means power under control. Power under control. Jesus was gentle. Somehow we think gentleness means weakness. And that's not it. It's power under control. Now, the word there also can be translated for respect, has been also translated reverence. It literally means fear. Now, Ray Pritchard says this on this, uh, the word uh, reverent or um, respect. He says, it means to be winsome, kind and gracious in your dealings with the lost. You can't argue people into the kingdom of God, and you can't swear at them and then say, do you want to accept Jesus? It doesn't work that way. We must be winsome if we would win some. And we must treat people with respect. Don't ever confuse arguing with answering. If we don't show respect for them, how will they ever show respect for us and for our message? People know when we are talking down to them or making fun of them or taking them lightly. Treat people with gentleness and respect, and they are likely to listen to what we have to say. On a practical level, this means listening to people, paying attention to them, looking at them while we talk to them, listening for the details, remembering names, and letting them tell us about their spiritual journey. It also means that we don't try to cram everything we know into one conversation. Most people come to Christ slowly over a period of time as they understand more and more of the truth. Better to give them bits and pieces than to try to force the whole message on them if they aren't ready to hear it. Some of us like to back up the theological dump truck and plant everything upon them. We start talking about tulip. And they're like, what are you talking about flowers? We start talking about all these different words and phrases that we've learned over time and makes us show smart rather than just speaking to them concretely to where they are. And we must make sure that we listen and answer. I was talking to an individual who was witnessing to a, a person on Facebook. And they said, I'd like prayer. I'm, I'm just throwing verses at them left and right, and they're getting more and more agitated. And they said, it's real spiritual warfare going on. And I said, well, I'm not sure if it's spiritual warfare as the fact that this person is frustrated that you're not answering their question. There's a big difference. Don't hide behind the Bible verse. What I mean by that is, and, and hear me now, is we're to apply the Word of God in all situations. But the Word of God isn't meant to hide our ignorance and to hide behind it. See, many people, what they do is they throw out a verse in a means of, uh, then they turn it into a spiritual thing. And yes, we are battling not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, powers, and authorities in the heavenly realms, as, as uh, the book of Ephesians talks about. But we are also to reason with other people. Paul debated at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17 with these different individuals. He didn't just throw out a verse for them every single time. It means getting an intelligent understanding of why we believe what we believe and using the Bible to show and testify to that fact. That's what we're to do. But hear me, though. I'm not saying that the Bible is... is I mean, the Bible is, it contains the message of salvation. But some people use it to hide behind conflict. And then they say it's a spiritual issue when the reality is is they're failing to address the question that the person has that's asking in a very genuine way. That's why I've seen teenagers turned off to the message of Jesus Christ. Because we refuse to be authentic and say when we don't know. Because we're fearful that if we don't know, then the whole edifice is going to, to fall. But that's not true. 
That's where we go, I don't know, I don't know but I'm going to try to find out, or I'm going to direct you to someone who can possibly help you in this endeavor. The worst thing you can do is make something up. Don't do that. Let the truth of God be your defense, but do so intelligently, not ignorantly. So we must make sure that we have the proper response in the last days as we do encounter all kinds of satanic arguments and unbelief. Now, we also make sure that we're not just talking verbally, but we're showing by our life that Jesus is Lord, making sure we give a proper reason, a response. We have God's protection. Protection. Look at verse 16 for a moment. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if it, be, it should be God's will, than for doing evil. See, not that God's going to keep us from suffering. When I'm talking about protection, it's not that. But we will show others that we are above reproach. Our protection then involves a good conscience. That's what I'm talking about here. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior, they're slandering you, they're seeking to get your goat, as it were. Good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. See, the thing is, is when that, the first line of defense goes, we abandon what we understand, and then we jump into the flesh, and then we're ready to roll up the sleeves. Now it's fighting. It's like the Irishman who got punched in the face. And then he just looked at the guy, and then the guy punched his other side of the face, then he rolled up his sleeve, and they said, what are you doing? He said, the Lord only said I was supposed to turn my cheek twice. <laughs> got ready to, was ready to rumble. It was a cage match. See, that's how many of us are. When that first line of defense caves, then we become fleshly. We must make sure that we don't become fleshly in our responses, dealing with gentleness and respect and understand that when we do, when our life continues to match our words, that God himself will be our defender. We will have a good conscience. Johnny Hunt, a Southern Baptist pastor, in his sermon on this verse says this, Christians who have a clear conscience are readily motivated to show their respect and obedience to God. Acts 23.1 says, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in good in all good conscience before God until this day. Before God, he had done his missionary work in all sincerity and truth. His conscience was clear. Conscience, to know the preposition with, may be defined as a thinking mind illuminated by the revelation of God. The conscience is that eternal, internal judge that witnesses to us that enables us to know with, either approving our actions or accusing. The conscience accuses by notifying the person of sin by producing guilt, shame, doubt, fear, anxiety, or despair. A life free of ongoing and unconfessed sin lived under the command of the Lord will produce a conscience that is without offense. When we're living the way we are supposed to be living, God will be our advocate. Those who revile us will be put to shame. Now, if we don't have a good conscience, then that leaves us with only three other options. Here's the first one, a defiled conscience. Titus chapter 1, verse 15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, Nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. We might have then a seared conscience. It's not a defiled conscience, it's a seared conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with the hot iron. As we continually continue on in sin, we will sear our conscience. We will fail to listen to it anymore. It's like going to Hobby Lobby. Go to Hobby Lobby and you walk out and the alarm goes off. And after the employees hear that so often, what do they do? Just go through. Just go through. 
See, when we continually operate in ignorance, and when we continually can stay in rebellions, and our, con- our rebellion, our conscience keeps going off, finally we just get tired of it and we say, just keep going. It's like a car alarm. When a car alarm goes off in your neighborhood, do you actually think it's somebody stealing the car? No, not anymore. You just want to yell out the window, shut it off! Steal the car just as long as it shuts off. See, that's what we've done. Is we just get used to it after a while, and then we quit listening to it. That's why we have to come back to the Word of God and let the Word of God speak truth to us and show us exactly how our conscience is to be. So if you don't have a defiled conscience or a seared conscience, you didn't have a good conscience, then you have an evil conscience. Hebrews 10.22, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, a good conscience is one that accuses us when we think we do wrong and approves when we do right. Acts 24.16 says, This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. A good conscience will fortify him with courage because he knows he is right with God and man, so that he need not be afraid. A good conscience also gives us peace in our hearts, and when we have peace within, we can face battles without. A good conscience removes us from the fear of what other people may know about us, say against us, or do, or do to us. See, when we're living in such a way that we're faithful to the word of God and authentic, then God becomes our advocate and protector. There's no room for slander and stuff to be made up, but the integrity of our choices will become apparent as others begin to see Jesus in us. Now, another way that we can have God's protection is when we engage in good conversation and have good conduct. I'm going to give you two, two points there right away. Good conversation and good conduct. Now, I want us to look back at verse 15 and how we are to answer each person with gentleness and respect. The word respect, just as we saw, also carries the idea of being more fearful of God than we are of man. It's a sober thing that we're doing. Paul mentions something similar in his letter to the church of Colossae. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Watch your words. We can build up with our words, or we can condemn and slice with our words. For those who understand, you, I think everyone in this room understands how badly words can hurt us. We understand how badly even our parents would say something bad about us, and that sticks with you, and it sears us. That's why we must be very careful in what we say. And when we speak, we must make sure that we speak the truth, having all the facts. Not that we don't call out sin when we see it, but make sure it is sin before we do it. Not speaking silly, but speaking seriously. Let our conversation or speech be be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Watch our words. And this means being careful how we respond to others about anything. We must guard what we say and how we say it. We must make sure that we know what we are talking about, and if we don't, then try not to make something up. But be honest and say we don't know. Try to find, uh, I'll try to find someone else that might help me. As I mentioned before, the worst answer you can give is one that is made up and meant to pacify the person, not really answer them. We must learn to guard our tongues in what we say. This is not an easy thing to do because our, our tongues, as James said, are rustless evils filled with all kinds of poisons. Nevertheless, we must. We don't go spreading rumors, gossiping about others, or boasting. We humbly listen and give answers where appropriate, but making sure we speak openly, honestly, making sure we have all the facts and that our lives will reflect our speech. Stephen Cole, in his sermon about Christian behavior, said this. He said, I read 
in our daily bread of a Christian baroness who lived in the highlands of Nairobi, Kenya, who had a young national employed as her houseboy. After three months, he asked the baroness to give him a letter of reference to a friendly sheik some miles away. The baroness, not wanting the houseboy to leave just when he had learned the routine of the household, offered to increase his pay. The boy replied that he was not leaving for higher pay. Rather, he had decided he would become either a Christian or a Muslim. This was why he had come to work for the baroness for three months. He wanted to see how Christians acted. Now he wanted to work for three months for the sheik to observe how Muslims lived. Then he would decide which religion he would follow. The baroness was stunned as she recalled her many shortcomings and dealings with the boy over the past three months. She could only exclaim, why didn't you tell me at the beginning? He, he, he goes on to say, lost people are watching our behavior even when we don't realize it. If we are zealous for what is good, especially when we're mistreated, it's a powerful witness. I'm not talking about being sinless, but rather about living obediently to Christ as the bent of your life. And when you sin, confessing it, making it right with those you sinned against. That kind of righteous life is the basis for the verbal Christian witness. Pretty powerful. Because people are watching your lives. You may not think so. You may not think that people are seeing what you do, but I guarantee if you mess up, you'll know. And they'll let you know. Why? Because they've been watching your life the entirety, entire time to see if your walk matches your talk. As we understand our job description as Jesus' followers in the last day, we must understand that everything that we endure is for the benefit of God's will. Look at verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. See, God doesn't, doesn't want us to suffer for doing evil, but for doing good, because God will use our suffering to bring His name glory. See, that's the great possibility of our suffering. Johnny Hunt, Johnny Hunt comments on this verse again. He says, This passage seems to suggest that God sanctions, wishes, or desires that His servants might suffer. As is the case with Job, God may allow Satan to afflict His followers temporarily. However, two affirmations may be safely urged. God never enjoys or desires the suffering of even a sparrow. He notes even the fall of such insignificant creatures. When his own followers endure temporary tribulation, the principle of Romans 28, 28 surfaces. The verse assures us that a just God will teach us in the midst of the dilemma and reward us beyond the ravages of anything we must endure. Let me conclude our message time with this. Are you fulfilling your job description as a Jesus follower in the last day? Are you giving a reason for the hope that you have and doing so with gentleness and respect? Are, you, are your words and your actions matching one another? We all have to ask ourselves those questions. Each one of us understands and knows, just like that Christian baroness did, that there were times when we mess up. We all mess up in many different ways, and that's where we thank God that He is a God of grace, that He is a God of forgiveness, that He restores us, that He cleanses our conscience, and He can make us new, that God allows U-turns. He allows us to start over. He allows do-overs. And that's all made available because of what His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, enabled to have happen by His death on the cross for our sins. That He forgives us of our sins, past, present, and future. That if we come to Him in repentance and faith, faith, that He will cleanse us and no means cast us out. That He will give us purpose and direction and then He will equip us as we continually depend upon Him to do what it is that He has purposed and planned and promised to do through us. Are we testifying to God's greatness with respect? Are we passionate for Jesus or are we lukewarm? 
Are you, are we willing to endure persecution with a good conscience that has been made available because of our good conduct and good conversation? That's the only way to fulfill what God has for us, to forsake sin, to make a fresh commitment for Him and start preparing ourselves for all that God has for us in Christ Jesus. Then and only then will we be able to faithfully fulfill God's purpose and promise for us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, help us to testify to Your greatness. Help us to tell other people. Help us to not be fearful of what other people may think, but may we fear you more than them. May we understand that you've given us the responsibility of testifying and telling other people who you are and what you've done, that you are the one true God, the Savior of the world, and this world is not going to continue as it has, that it's coming to an end, that you, are, you have promised to return and that you will judge all the living and the dead. Lord, may we be faithful stewards of our testimonies, not only saying what it is that you have, you have done, but what it is that you have done in our lives. Lord, may we recall what we have been saved from. May we remember fondly. May we return with zeal. May we repent and come back to you, not caring what others may think, but continually telling others by our lives and by our actions that you are the one true God, the Savior of the world. We ask you to bless us, to use us for your glory. Lord, if you desire us to suffer, may we suffer. May we suffer faithfully. May we continually rely upon you. But Lord, use us. Please, we beg of you, use us to bring your name glory. Lord, to help us to do whatever it may take, whatever cost it may, whatever payment we need to make, Lord, let us do it. But let us show by the fabric of our lives that you're worth more than our earthly comforts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.